0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before Shopify, were you wondering where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha ching <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including Commodore's Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hey Zoomin, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Connor Falinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The history of French colonialism and the history of piracy are entwined. I know that probably doesn't come as a shock to anyone who has listened to this show. Piracy seems to be a byproduct of colonialism anywhere it happens in the world. But the French had a particularly close relationship with the pirates. Together with the plantation system of slaves and sugar, they braided together to undermine and destroy the Spanish Empire. The first official French colonies in the New World, all of them in what would become Nouvelle-Francais, were in North America. All of those earliest colonies failed. There were... Conflicts with indigenous tribes, there were problems with disease, and there were supply problems in getting much of the necessary material needed to those colonists. Basically, getting ships from France to North America was difficult, and it was unreliable if you weren't using the trade winds. Those trade winds carried you south, and then across the Atlantic to the West Indies, which is where the first sustainable French colonies were, really the first sustainable colonies for anybody trying to gain a foothold in the New World. They colonized what would become French Guiana, and then moved on to Saint-Kitts, Guadeloupe, and Martinique. Most of that early colonization was done by about the 1630s, but with that wave of French immigration came the religious exiles, the shunned gay men and the petty criminals that formed the Bougainy. Those outcasts settled, as we may have mentioned before, on the northwest coast of San Domingo, they called it Haiti. The French government ignored Haiti and Nouvelle francais or New France, in North America for almost 30 years. Those settlers in New France lived very much like the early Bougagny. They lived in... well, peace isn't the right word, and... Harmony doesn't work either, but the French allied themselves with certain Native American tribes and traded with them. They learned their languages and learned some of their customs. In a lot of cases, those French settlers went native, as they say. At the very least, the French lived in a sort of cohabitation with the Native Americans. At the time, it was really their only option. They didn't have the numbers or the infrastructure to build what we might think of as colonies, and they lived lives of hunting and trapping for furs. They learned the skills to do so from the native peoples that were doing that already, and that allowed the French to earn a living in much the same fashion as the Bouganis down south. Until the 1660s, that was when France decided it was time to expand and began to exert their authority over these previously ignored settlements. Now, we've already discussed what happened in Haiti. France sent a governor and began calling the colony Saint-Dominique. In North America, they went further. They sent men to explore the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. And then King Louis sent over Jean Talon to serve as the first intendant of New France. Remember that policy I mentioned a few episodes back, about France sending over women to civilize their rougher colonies? That policy started in New France. It was a bit more organized up in North America, though. They collected over 800 young women, all of them orphans, and sent them to New France. They called these women filles du roi, the king's daughters. It's a very similar naming convention to Charles II of England, having so many natural sons named Fitzroy. These filles du roi were treated as though they were actually wards of the king, though. They were mostly lower class, but the king's agents chose the most eligible bachelorettes they could find. All of them were between twelve and twenty-five years of age. They were certified healthy by doctors, and, if possible, they were attractive. They were sent over in royally commissioned vessels of the French East India Company, and each of them was given a dowry by the king. That dowry was actually a decent sum. It was intended to make them even more eligible. Then King Louis built what was called a hospital. It was a place for these women to live when they came to the New World. It was run by nuns, and it was a place where they could stay in safety until they could find a husband. That was a lot of investment, all to convince these rough-cut fur traders to settle down and turn to agriculture. For the filet Duis, though, it really wasn't a bad deal. Even in a metropolis like Paris, orphaned girls didn't have a lot of prospects. They didn't have a family to help them out, and they were unable to raise a dowry to present to potential husbands. Most of those young women would have futures in domestic work for middle-class families. philly on the other hand, had the potential to become prominent women in what were really new burgeoning colonies. Down in Saint-Dominique, the women sent over from France had fewer opportunities. These weren't those eligible bachelorettes that King Louis chose. Now, some would consider those women sent over, people like Anne, to be fillies du roi, but other historians only count those 800 sent to North America. The women sent to Saint-Dominique, though, they weren't raised by nuns. They didn't have a hospital for their benefit. They grew up hard. They grew up in France mostly in brothels or begging. Many of them came from debtors' prisons, where they or their families were in prison. Tortuga was a rough place to make it, especially without the backing of the king that the other filet had in the north. Pirates didn't often make good prospects for marriage, and a brothel was often their only option. So, Anne probably felt fortunate when, around the year 1684, she met and married Pierre Long. Lelong Long was a former privateer, but he chose to give up roving and to buy property. And Anne, now Anne Lelong, was one of the lucky young women sent to Tortuga. She had something in common with those filles du roi in New France. The French were expanding all across their colonial empire, including Saint-Dominique. Anne was one of those women who now had that opportunity to become one of the most prominent women in the French colony. Pierre Lelong, around 1670, led an expedition east from Tortuga. Many of the men who went with him were his crew. They were legitimate privateers that intended to settle down and start a family. Pierre Le Long was the captain of this expedition and their leader as a privateer. They didn't sail far, only about 12 leagues down the coast from Tortuga. They established a small community at Cap Francois. It was a settlement that was intended to eventually become a sugar plantation. Years later, their settlement would become the capital of Saint-Dominique and would be dubbed the Paris of the West Indies. It was, for a time later on, the jewel of the French Empire. And by 1684, Anne was the wife of the most prominent man in the settlement. It was still small, only a few dozen families, but Pierre Le Long was essentially the governor. He was the pillar of the community. And now, everyone looked to him and to his young bride for guidance. This is episode 55, Twilight of the Bougainy, part 3. Cap Francois was the future of the French in the West Indies. The days of sailing and roving for plunder were coming to an end. The economy was shifting toward sugar. But sugar plantations and the slaves that came with them came second to establishing a thriving settlement that could feed and clothe and house themselves. Pierre Lelong settled at Petit Anse on the right bank of the Cap River. The town they founded, Cap Francois, would later on be called cap Français, and eventually Cap Haitian after the Revolution. Lelong started a farm that produced food rather than sugar, mostly cassava, as well as cotton. He was, at the time, the largest landowner in the region, even before marrying Anne. Others in his crew grew corn or plantains, while a few others moved in and started milling the food and the lumber that was actually to be used by the people. It was, for now, idyllic. If you could overlook the mosquitoes, they lived along a river, on a bluff overlooking the ocean. Now, eventually, King Sugar would make its way to the township, along with slavery. Louis would issue what was called the Code Noir, which regulated slavery in the French colonies. It also imposed strict regulations on any people of color, even free people of color, and it imposed Roman Catholicism on everyone. It's really the basis for several sects of voodoo, which is, in some ways, modified West African religions shoved into a Catholic mold. But however Anne would feel about that, all of that had not yet come to Cap Francois. I like to think that, for the time, she was happy there. We don't have a journal or anything recording her thoughts, but Pierre Lelong would later be described as, quote, patient, tenacious, and energetic, and generous to the humble, end quote. We know very little about him, but he seems to have been a good man. He had a productive farm and made a profit, at least. It was probably a bucolic life for Anne, filled with the work involved in running a farmhouse, but also with the pleasures of a new marriage and a happy home. This was a fantastic time for Anne to have married and moved to a new village, though. Back in Tortuga and Petit Guave, things were rapidly changing. In the spring of 1684, a new governor arrived. Pierre-Paul Tarin de Cousset was the full-time replacement in Saint-Dominique, which had been under an acting governor for almost a year. He was tasked with three things in particular. First, he was to turn Saint-Dominique into a profitable, large, populous, sugar-producing colony. That means slaves, and the Code Noir families, plantations, and lots and lots of land. That was what the Lelong family was up to over in Cap-Francois. Second, De Descusé was to defend what territory France now controlled on the island, and when the time came, he was to expand that territory. King Louis knew exactly when that time was coming, but for now he was playing his hand close to the chest. Third, de was to rid Saint-Dominique of the plague called Buccony. To that end, King Louis and his secretary, Colbert, sent two officials out to specifically curb piracy from Tortuga and Petit Guave. Now, they didn't intend to kick out all of the men or kill them, not yet anyway, but they did immediately stop issuing letters of marque. The plan was to incorporate the pirates into the colony, to turn them into planters, and it worked well among some. For example, the crew of Pierre Le Long and a few others. All of those men were building farms and villages. They were looking for wives. It was a good first step, and it was working, but imperfectly. The next step was to forbid any trading with the Dutch. This was a big one. The Dutch West India Company was the key to all trade in the West Indies. Now, eventually we're going to do a show based around these trading companies. They're essential to the story. However, to boil it down here, these companies, which were the first real international corporations, handled the trade in slaves, sugar, and all of the colonial goods of the age. The French West India Company, though, had dissolved ten years prior. Anyway, they weren't based in the Caribbean, they were based in North America. The English didn't have a West India Company at all. English trade in the Caribbean was handled mostly by royal shipping. Eventually, that would be passed on to the East India Company. So right now, the Dutch West India Company was it. They had fleets of flutes in the New World, and they had fortresses on a dozen different islands guarding their goods. They ran what was almost a monopoly on sugar and slaves, as well as the spices from the east. England and France hated this arrangement. This allowed the Dutch to take a cut out of everything produced on their islands. It's really the core of all of the conflicts in this story. So on Saint-Dominique, France forbade trade with them. They floated a fleet of their own royal merchantmen and tasked those ships with handling trade in the West Indies. This was much the same arrangement as the English had in Port Royal. The problem here is that French royal merchantmen had rules about trading in ill-gotten goods. Pirated cargo was forbidden in their warehouses. Anything won by privateers was fine, but, as we said right now, the French weren't handing out letters of marque. The Dutch, though, the West India Company, had no such regulations. They were perfectly happy to buy any Spanish goods stolen by the pirates at what was a pretty fair price. See, the Dutch West India Company was a private company. They weren't a government trading fleet. And beyond that, there was no love lost between the Dutch and, well, the Spanish, but basically anyone else when trade was on the line. So by the early summer of 1684, a line had been drawn in the sand. The buccaneers, those privateers, were entirely out of work. Any of them that continued to ply their trade, well, they would be considered pirates, hostis humani generis, and they would be killed. And then, with all of those new policies in place, Lorho de Graff returned from his raid on Cartagena. It must have been a tense moment. A Dutch privateer, often called a pirate, had to meet the new governor, his new anti-piracy specialists, and explain himself with a Spanish ship in tow after attacking a Spanish city. Luckily, the new governor understood that he'd been under a commission, and attacked Spain while they were still officially at war, so everything here was on the up-and-up. De Cusé welcomed Lord de Graaf then the governor informed Lorho de Graf that there would be no more letters of marque. Any engagement in piracy would be met with summary execution. At that very moment, Mikhail Zun and Jan Willems were busy engaging in some piracy. Both of them had fancy new ships from the raid on Cartagena. Zun was sailing the Paz, which he'd renamed the Rascal, or in French, Mutine, Willems sailed de Graf's old ship, La Francesca. They decided not to go back to Petit Guavre quite yet. The new ships they had were nice and all, but they needed a real haul to pay the crew and to line their own pockets before going home. They posted up in the shipping lanes outside of Havana and waited to intercept any ships that came their way. On May eighteenth, 1684, two Dutch West India men appeared. They belonged to the Dutch West India Company, this was suspicious. The two pirates, Willems and Andre Zun, may have been sailing under the flag of France, but they were still Dutch. The Netherlands were neutral in the conflict that had just broken out, so why were two Dutch ships sailing from Havana? The Spanish had their own armadas, they had trade galleons, they didn't need to deal with the Dutch. So the pirates intercepted the two merchant ships, the Stad Rotterdam and the Elizabeth. They found exactly what they expected. Spain was using the neutral ships to transport officials and huge amounts of money. There was a bishop, there were officials bound for other Spanish holdings, and 200,000 pesos in Spanish gold and silver. It was quite the haul. Willems and Andre Zun didn't mind helping themselves to it. They captured all of the Spanish prisoners and brought them aboard, but they only took half of the money. That left 100,000 pesos with the Dutch. This wasn't a treasure galleon hauling silver to Spain. This was payment for transporting the passengers. Now, Willems and André Zun may have traveled back to Hopital, near Petit Guave, in secret. We don't know that they did, but somehow they learned about the situation in Saint-Dominique. They learned that privateering was now considered out-and-out piracy, and that a hanging waited any man on the account. There on Saint Dominique, Michel de Grammont and Lorho de Graff were petitioning the new governor and his officials to recant their position on privateering. They were the best choices to argue that point. De Graff was a returning hero, after Cartagena, and Grammont was Sieur Michel, Chevalier de Grammont. His name had at least a little weight, and they were making some headway with the governor. He had written the minister, Colbert, back in France, informing him that the king's policy towards the Buccony was dangerous. They had the exact same problem that Jamaica had faced 15 years earlier. The privateers were their only option for naval defense, and right now, Louis was back at Luxembourg, bombarding their walls. France was in open war with Spain, and Saint-Dominique was deep in Spanish territory. I mean, they sat on the far west of an island named Santo Domingo. It was home to thousands of Spanish citizens. De Cusay and his advisers on piracy implored Louis to recant his orders and to allow them to issue commissions. Louis declined. As for Willems and Andres zoon, if they did head home to Petit Guave, they left immediately. The next word we have of Andres Zune comes from a letter written in August 1684 by Edward Cranfield, the governor of the New Hampshire colony at Portsmouth. He writes, "...a French privateer of thirty-five guns has arrived at Boston. I am credibly informed that they share seven hundred pounds a man. The Bostoners no sooner heard of her off the coast than they dispatched a messenger and pilot to convey her into port in defiance of the King's proclamation. The pirates are likely to leave the greatest part of their plate behind them, having bought up most of the choice goods in Boston. The ship is now fitting for another expedition." And he would go on. They are both extraordinarily rich ships, chiefly through the spoil of the Spaniards, though they have spared none that they have met at sea. End quote. The governor was referencing Andre Zun in The Mutine. He and his men did quickly spend much of their plunder and enjoy all the pleasures that Boston in August had to offer, but then they moved on to Portsmouth. Now, we haven't talked much about the English lately. We will be very shortly but we haven't talked much about them because basically all of the English pirates had fled Port Royal. Many of them settled in a French colony in modern-day Texas that was quickly turning into a pirate haunt, and we'll talk more about that later. Most of them, though, headed up to the Atlantic coast of North America. Many settled in the swamps of Carolina. Dampier, for example, lived in Virginia for a time, but even more lived around Newport, New York, and Boston. So many, in fact, that the Massachusetts Bay Colony had drafted up a little law about pirates. It read, in part, quote, The court observing the wicked and unrighteous practices of evil men to increase, some piratically, seizing of ships, catches, etc., and others by rising up against their commanders, officers, and employers, etc., this court doeth order, and be it hereby ordered and enacted, that what person or persons soever shall be piratically or feloniously seize any ship or other vessel, whether in the harbour or on the seas, or shall rise up in rebellion against the master, officers, merchant, or owners of any such ship or other sea vessel and goods, shall be apprehended, and being legally convicted thereof, shall be put to death. End quote. Now, that's not an uncommon law. Pirates were criminals, after all. However, only a month before Andre Zoon and Willems arrived in New England, King Charles II issued a proclamation. He declared it unlawful to, quote, entertain, harbor, counsel, trade, or hold any correspondence, by letter or otherwise, with any person or persons that shall be deemed or adjudged to be privateers, pirates, or other offenders within the construction of this act. End quote. It was that proclamation that Governor Cranfield was referencing in his letter. Now, the colonies hadn't received word of it when Andre Zun arrived in Boston, so they were allowed in. They were allowed to spread their Spanish silver about. The governor in Boston let them gamble away their winnings. He let them spend their silver on wine and women at every tavern in town. He let them buy meals and stock up on foodstuff, and even many of them bought new clothes from Boston's fantastic clothiers. He let the privateers spend the greater part of 100,000 Spanish dollars there in Boston. But only a few weeks later, the governor of New Hampshire knew two things that the governor of Boston didn't. First, he'd received the king's proclamation, but second, he'd received word from Governor William Dyer in Newport, Rhode Island. Governor Dyer had received several Spanish dignitaries, men that had escaped from a ship in his harbor. A ship that they informed him was, quote, a privateer of the first magnitude, famous in bloodshed and robberies called La Trompouse, commanded by one Mikkel Andrezoon Bra, or Lavanza, a reputed Frenchman. I have moved for justice against him, but I have been delayed and much discouraged and severely threatened by many, and more especially by one Mr. Samuel Shrimpton, a merchant of this place, to have my brains beat out, or a stab, for seizing the said ship. He has supplied, succoured, countenanced, and encouraged her, and taken her into his custody, and keeping at Nodal's Island the place and receptacle of all piratical and uncustomed goods, and boasting to defend the same and fit the ship out again. He has also received, clandestinely, great quantities of their gold, silver, jewels, and cacao." Now, there are a few things wrong with that letter. First, it was Willems in Newport, not Andres Zun, and he was aboard the Francesca, not La Trompouse. But Governor Dyer had received several Spanish escapees from La Francesca, and learned that the men in the harbor were, in fact, pirates. Now, he was prevented from apprehending Willems by threat of violence by one Samuel Shrimpton, We'll talk a lot more about Shrimpton when we return to the English, but I should mention here, to put some of this in context, that there's a lot happening in the world of English piracy right now. The English were once again active in a very big way. They were pestering the Spanish all over the world, except in the West Indies. I'm going to keep my mouth shut on what happened until we get there, but keep that in mind. So Willems was safe in Newport, but in Portsmouth, Governor Cranfield apprehended Mikhail soon. Once again, Governor Dyer was incorrect, but on the right path when he wrote, quote, I have also caused Thomas Paine, the arch pirate, to be secured and charged the governor of Rhode Island with him and with his own neglect for not assisting the deputy collector to seize him and his ship, End quote. These letters are all filled with tattletales. The governor of Rhode Island talking about how Boston just let the pirates in. The governor of New Hampshire calling out Rhode Island and deflecting blame to Samuel Shrimpton. I just love all of it. I'm really excited to talk about New England, but for now, Andre Zoon got a message out to Willems. He told Willems to sail without him, though he shouldn't worry. Andre Zoon said he would be out soon enough. And he was right. He only spent a few weeks in captivity before being freed and allowed to sail home. Willems and André Zun eventually made it safely home to the Caribbean. The situation in Saint-Dominique hadn't improved. King Louis had still refused to recant his orders on the Bougagny, and the French were beginning to really feel the pressure from the Spanish in the region. So Willems and several others made for the Maine. De Graff and Grimaud, though, kept up their petition. I wonder if De Graff was considering that offer of friendship made by Governor Lynch back in Port Royal. As for Willems, we hear from him again on October 14, 1684, when he met the English ship James near the main. The captain of the James would later write, and I've corrected a couple of small details here, We met Captain Willems in his ship the Dolphin, off Cartagena, who fired a volley of small shot into our sloop, in spite of our showing our colors, and ordered us on board him while his men plundered our sloop. We were kept prisoners for six weeks till he came to Petit Guave, where the intendant and council voted her a good prize. End quote. Now, I've used the Spanish nickname for this ship, Francesca, almost exclusively, but in different languages she has a bunch of different names. The English called her Dolphin, but the French called her Dauphine, which is French for Princess. Her official Spanish name was Princesa and Willems himself probably called her Princess in a Dutch accent, but most records call her Francesca, so to avoid confusion, I'll do the same. Around mid-November, things were looking up, though. Governor de Cusay had finally decided to ignore the king's orders. He chose to circumvent them through a bunch of different loopholes that were only quasi-legal, however the situation called for them. The Spanish were massing fleets at Santo Domingo, Cartagena, and Havana. They were gathering armies as well. In Petit Guave, and in Tortuga, and in Cap-François and Hôpital, anywhere that the French lived on Saint-Dominique, it looked very much like Spain was preparing to invade. They needed a response. So, Governor Pierre-Paul de Cousset empowered the privateers to go to sea. He told Grammont and de Graff that they would have commissions on two conditions— First, they were to alleviate the pressure mounting on Saint-Dominique by attacking the Spanish far away and forcing them to respond. Second, though, and more importantly, they had to rebuild the Brethren of the Coast. They were to convince the other Boucani, what remained of the Brethren, to return to Petit-Guave. Much like Willems and Andres Zoon, most of the French and Dutch pirates in the region were laying low. They were far from Saint-Dominique. The previous governor and Descusset had made the colony unwelcome these past two years or so. De Graff and Grimaud were intended to bring them in from the cold and convince them to once again sail for France. They would have to send out word to every corner of the West Indies, to Charlestown on New Providence Island, to Montego Bay and Port Royal in Jamaica, the Mosquito Coast, the Lagunas de Terminos, the Bay of Honduras, the Bocas del Toros, and the Coast of Darien, even as far away as the northern coast of the Gulf of Mexico. There was a little settlement there. The French explorer La Salle established colonies all along the Mississippi River in New France. His newest fortification, only about a year old, was well hidden along the coast. It was intended to explore and settle the mouth of the Mississippi River. It was to be the southernmost town in what they were calling Louisiana. But the French exiles from Saint-Dominique had moved in. At first, they were welcomed by the new colonists, but it soon became clear that these exiles were really little more than brigands and pirates. What's more, they were deviants. They were unmarried women, men with unnatural appetites, and all of them were Huguenots. The colonists, mostly rough settlers, well, they tried to kick the pirates out, but they made it clear that they weren't leaving. The pirates really liked it there. So de Graff would have to send messengers to La Salle's little pirate haven to bring them in. It was time for everyone to assemble. Now, exactly what Grimaud was up to over the next few months is unclear. He left Petit Guave, we know, in the Saint Nicholas, and we can assume that he was out collecting men and ships. Perhaps he went to that little colony of La Salle's to personally convince the buccaneers to come in. Now, we know a lot more about what de Graff was doing. See, while he was still on Saint-Dominique, he was gathering a crew. There he met a man named Ravneau de Lussan, who would write an account of his voyage. This account will become extremely useful later on, but for now it gives us very good details of what was happening in those weeks in November and December 1684. Let me read just a bit from the first few pages. Lussan writes, quote, It is no uncommon thing for a native of Paris to go and seek his fortune abroad, and to entertain a fixed design of becoming a man engaged in hazardous adventures. This city, within which most of the wonders of the world are contained, and which is perhaps the greatest that can be met with, ought, in my opinion, to have the preference of any other upon the face of the earth. But who is he that can penetrate into the secrets of nature, and give a reason for some of the inclinations she works in the minds of mortals? As for myself, I must confess I am not able to give an account of the depth of my desires, and all that I can say is, that I have always had a most passionate disposition for travel. And he goes on, There was no question to be made, but I could find a captain that would receive me, and I was not long in making the choice, since there was not many of them at the time to pitch upon. Lawrence de Graff was the man I most fancied, who would make a special corsair, and though he had not been long arrived, all that he wanted was to be gone as well as I. We were, in a few hours' time, well satisfied with each other, and became such friends, as those are wont to be, who are about to run the same risk of fortune, and apparently to die together. This last, indeed, we should have reckoned upon with most appearance of reason, but it was what we least thought of." End quote. His entire account is like that. It's beautiful, and it's an invaluable resource, especially in his later ventures. But it pretty quickly becomes a bit monotonous. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. He and Lorjo de Graff sailed from Petit Guave on November 22nd. Now, they weren't aboard the Fortune. They were aboard a small sloop that was there to collect a few men. Their ship made for Tortuga and arrived on December 4th. On December 6th, they left Tortuga and headed for the coast of Saint-Dominique. On the 12th, they arrived at the coast and collected wood and water. Five days later, on the 17th, they left Saint-Dominique and headed for the Windward Passage. However, there a contrary wind arose and blew the sloop that they were towing loose. So they headed back to the coast and took shelter from the storm. The next day, December 18th, when the storm passed, they sent for another sloop in Tortuga and to replenish lost supplies. And it goes on like that. You see what I mean about the monotony? But things were afoot back in Petit Guave that are worth mentioning. The English in Port Royal had sent out their most powerful warship, HMS Ruby, under Captain David Mitchell. He was sent to, quote, forthwith sail to Petit Guave and deliver my letter to the governor, demanding satisfaction for a sloop of this island unlawfully seized. End quote. He was sent to arrest Jan Willems and bring him back, as well as the English sloop that Willems had stolen back in October. However, Captain Mitchell would be out of luck here. The French were unwilling to part with anything that might compromise their defense, and that included the sloop, but it especially included a skilled commander like Willems. In response to his request for Willems, the secretary of the governor in Saint-Dominique wrote to the captain of the Ruby, quote, I assure you that we know him to be incapable of such a thing, end quote. Now, of course, they knew him to be very capable of such a thing, but they defended Willems. They claimed that the prize was entirely lawful, but then, as a conciliatory gesture, they sent out three English rovers who were illegally serving on Willems' ship. This wasn't what the Ruby was after, and it wouldn't be the last time that Captain Mitchell would sail back to Port Royal disappointed, He did note, though, what sails he recognized in the harbor at Petit Fortune, Moutine, and all of the other notable ships that we've seen lately, well, they weren't there. Only La Francesca was. Most of the Brethren of the Coast were out gathering their forces. Meanwhile, in that comedy of errors taking place on de Graf and Lusanne's ship, they were once again trying to make for the Windward Passage. He says that they were trying to join a convoy of French officials to escort them to wherever they might be going. He claimed that there was a convoy led by the victorious and carrying the lieutenant general of all the French islands and the coast of Terra Firma. There were also secretaries of finance and all sorts of fancy people. Now that convoy probably existed, but Lusanne was never actually trying to meet with them. Hill directly contradict himself in less than a page. Either way, though, the goal was to round Cuba. But the wind was contrary. It was blowing east. So the ship decided to turn around and head east. They passed Christmas Day and New Year's Day at sea. It had been almost exactly a year since de Grof attacked Cartagena. For the next few weeks they sailed all the way around San Dominique. They passed through the Mona passage near Puerto Rico and headed west on the south side of the island. It took them almost two months, and circling the entire island of Hispaniola, and they'd made it about twenty leagues. On January 18th, 1685, their ship met another ship at sea. That other ship hailed de Graffs, and they returned the greeting de Graff signaled that they were French and commissioned by, as Luson points out, the Lord High Admiral of France. But that other ship apparently didn't believe them. She fired off two volleys and instructed de Graff to strike her colors and surrender. Lussan writes, quote, "...taking him for a Spaniard, we knocked out the head of two barrels of powder in order to burn ourselves and blow up the ship." rather than fall into the hands of those people who never gave us quarter, but were wont to make us suffer all imaginable torments, beginning, usually, with the captain, whom they hang with his commission about his neck. But one of the two ships came up with us in a moment, and, knowing what we were, gave us a signal, that instead of enemies, which we took them to be, they proved to be not only friends, but those very ships we were in quest of. End quote. Now does that sound like, Lorho de Graff, the pirate who stole La Francesca out from under the noses of the Windward Fleet, the pirate who captured Vera Cruz with only 300 men, who sailed on Cartagena itself and defeated her fleet under the guns of her forts, would that pirate order the powder opened and the ship burned killing everyone on board? Well, no, not typically. Were he in the Fortune, his flagship, he would be capable of standing and fighting almost any ship in the West Indies. But they were on that small sloop. Now, I tend to think that there might be some anti-Degraaff de propaganda going on here, painting him as a coward. Considering the environment in which Lussan's book was published, well, it's a real possibility, but I don't know that. The ship that fired on de Degraaff and Lussan turned out to be none other than the French buccaneer Jean Rose. Together, they sailed for the cape of the peninsula there on Saint-Dominique, where they met with a small fleet of other ships, including the Fortune and Moutin, both, at the moment, under André Zun. There were a bunch of other ships there as well. It's hard to say exactly, but Luson mentions Jean Rose, Francois Lesage, and Pierre Lagarde, as well as captains named Quet, Vigneron, and an unnamed English trader. Now, we can surmise that there were others there, if we take a look at what happens after probably Francois Groinet, and possibly a captain, Jean Bernanos, possibly more, but they may have joined later. However, we know that Michel de Grammont was not there. Mostly these were small timers. These weren't the big names that made it into official records and governor's letters, but many of these ships were probably present at Veracruz and Cartagena. Some of them maybe were captained by men that earned their captaincies at those events. This was, by the way, those friends they were in quest of. They had never been after the lieutenant general of all French islands and terra firma. De Graff was always trying to find these pirates. So their little fleet headed south and met up with Mathurin de Martez and Pierre Le Picard, among a few others. They proceeded to take a few ships here and there off the coast between Maracaibo and the Leeward Islands. Then the pirates called on the Dutch port at Curacao. Lusanne writes, On the 20th we sent away a boat under the command of Lagarde to the town to ask the governor's leave to buy us masts for Captain Lawrence and his ship that had lost them in a hurricane near the Isle of St. Thomas. A part of our crew scrupled not in the meantime to go ashore and enter the town after having left their swords behind them at the gate. The governor, finding we were two hundred men of us in the town, informed us by beat of drum that it was his pleasure we should be gone and return forthwith on board our ships. End quote. They got kicked out. The governor there knew they were sailing with Andre soon, and knew well of his depredations against those two Dutch ships outside Havana a few months earlier. Lucian couches it all in polite language, but. The men appeared to be very disappointed before any of them had a chance to visit a brothel. Now that everyone was gathered and the pirates had rallied what strength they could, they sat in council on February 8th to decide their next move. Many of the pirates, especially those who hadn't been there, called for another attack on Cartagena. De patiently explained that he'd attacked Cartagena when the city was ill-prepared, when they were undefended and not expecting an attack— He still hadn't made it inside the city, even under those perfect conditions. The pirates, though, were determined. They wanted a big prize, something that was impressive and rich. DeGroff explained that they weren't after big prizes here. They had a job to do. They were to harass shipping. They were to capture merchantmen. Maybe invade some smaller settlements, but little jobs. Lots of them, but little jobs. Nothing huge and explosive. This was, though, not what the assembled pirates wanted to hear. So, the crews found themselves at an impasse. De Groff had a loyal crew and a crew that respected him, so he couldn't be compelled by his men to do something he didn't think was right. The other ships, though, didn't want to follow De Groff on little jobs. They wanted really big prizes, but without De Groff, they wouldn't be able to take them. So, everything fell apart. The fleet split up. De Graf sailed for the Gulf of Honduras. Andre Zun and Jean Rose chose to stick around in the region and continue taking some of those smaller prizes. Most of the fleet followed Rose and Andre Zun. They would take a few of those smaller ships, but eventually we would hear about another raid. a raid that was big and promised to be a rich haul. We'll be talking about that one later. For now, though, Rose and Picard and most of the other pirates scuttled their ships there on the coast of Darien and began a march across the Isthmus. André Zun chose not to do so, but he lost 120 men who did want to accompany that raid. So he sailed home to Petit Guave. Back in Port Royal, the lieutenant governor would write, quote, Captain Michel, a French privateer, was recently beaten off by the Spaniards from Darien with loss of his prizes. The French continued to issue commissions against the Spaniard on pretense of damage done them by piraguas set out from Havana before the making of the recent truce in Europe. Quote. See, back in Europe, the War of the Reunions had just concluded. But these privateers, well, they were continuing the war. They lived beyond the line, and there was no peace beyond the line. In truth, though, the actions of the privateers was... Well, everything they were doing was just a continuation of all of the wars leading up to it. And, of course, right now, it wasn't official French policy to employ privateers. But therein lies the hypocrisy in the entire institution of privateering. A monarch would employ the rovers, but he wouldn't pay them. They earned whatever they could steal... And when the war was over, they were just expected to stop. They were out of a job. And even then, their services were still necessary, but their legal backing just vanished, on the whims of one monarch or another. Now, they did have commissions right now, but how much weight did those commissions really carry? They were only on the authority of De Say, which, compared to Louis XIV, wasn't much. Now, we meet up with the privateers again in April 1685. Captain Mitchell of the HMS Ruby was out searching for English pirates this time. There was reportedly a great gathering of privateers with French commissions, and any Englishman there was breaking the law. He was rightly a pirate. Mitchell had word that the privateers were gathering on the Isle of Pines, off the southern coast of Cuba. When he arrived, he found more than 22 ships lying at anchor, in the midst of one of those great Brethren of the Coast meetings. Now... What follows breaks a few of the pirate stereotypes. Most media would portray a meeting like this in a romantic and tense, finger on the trigger, pulse-pounding kind of drama. And later on, in the Golden Age, they might be right to do so. An English Royal Navy ship could pose a serious problem for pirates in any age. In fact, this same ship, the Ruby, would do just that years down the line. Those pirates in the Golden Age might have to make quick decisions on whether to flee or to fight, or maybe to lure the Englishmen into an ambush. But these privateers, mostly legal, well, they just invited Mitchell on over. So he and a few of his officers climbed aboard the fortune and met up with some of the top privateer leadership. De Grof would have been there, as well as Mikhail andrizon and Grammont was there by this point, as well as Jan Willems. Now I imagine that they shared some wine, maybe they had a meal. Mitchell and the Ruby were there in an attempt to arrest any Englishman among them, but he realized pretty quickly that that wasn't likely to happen. Even if he tried to enforce it, a ship like the Ruby, which was a pretty impressive warship, was still no match against 22 privateers. In his report to the Jamaican governor, Mitchell named several of the pirates who were in attendance at this great meeting. There was de Graff, André Zoon, Willems, Gourmand. But he also noted sails belonging to Joseph Bannister of the Golden Fleece. Now, we're going to talk about Bannister more in a few episodes, but Captain Mitchell wanted to bring him in. He was English, and he was serving under French colors. That was a clear violation of English policy. But de Graff told him with a straight face that Bannister wasn't serving under a French commission. And on some level that may have been true... Bannister was a pirate, but here he'd joined up with a French privateer fleet. He should have been arrested. Nonetheless, Captain Mitchell thought it best not to press the issue and sailed away empty-handed, again. Now, there may well have been other English ships there as well. We don't have good records on several English pirates, namely John Coxon and Thomas Payne, for these few months. They could have been elsewhere, and there's suggestions that Payne was actually in Rhode Island, but we do get word about a year later that Coxon and Payne both had, quote, become very weary of the honest life and reverted to piracy, end quote. We can also piece together the names of a few other pirates that were there. Not English pirates, but Dutch and French mostly. Jacob Evertson was there. Pierre Boat was there. Nicholas Brigau was there. That leaves somewhere between 12 and 15 ships that we don't know who they were. Some may have belonged to names we know, but we can't be sure. We can be sure, though, that Pierre Le Picard and Jean Rose and everybody else that went off to Panama was not there. After the ruby sailed away, the pirates continued on with their meeting. They were voting at the time on where to attack. This time, de acknowledged that they should, in fact, attack a city somewhere. Now, not Cartagena or Panama or Veracruz, certainly not Havana, they just weren't strong enough for that. However, de Graff pushed for Campeche. It was something of a classic for the Buccaneers. Likely, every pirate and privateer assembled at this meeting had been there before. A brief and incomplete list of the major pirate attacks on the city up to this point includes raids by John Hawkins, Sir Francis Drake, Henry Morgan, Diego Lucifer, Cornelius Yole, Bartolomeu Portuguese, Louis Scott, and Roque Brasiliano. And now these brethren agreed with their forebears and decided to attack Campeche. The buccaneers then went ahead and passed all of their articles and their code. They named a Graf admiral, but they also named a few of his lieutenants. Then they sailed for Cabo Catoche, that is the northernmost point on the Yucatan Peninsula to the northeast of the Yucatan, It was a spot that any passing ship would have to pass round, and it gave the pirates an opportunity to collect any brethren that might be passing by. And they did, in fact, collect quite a few ships there, at least eleven more. Among them, they collected two ships belonging to Captains Richard and Jean Focard. But it wasn't exactly an incognito hideout. The fleet had six large ships with them. Those were well-armed and under heavy sail, There were frigates and galleons and corvettes and even a couple of converted large freighters. The Fortune, the Mutine, St. Nicholas, La Francesca, Colbert, and La Tigre, they were all there. Then they had ten smaller ships and sloops of war. Those alone would have raised suspicion, but then they had a small armada of seventeen periaguas. That's the sort of gathering that gets noticed. So Campeche had word of them well before the pirates left Cabo Catoche. There, the lieutenant governor of the Yucatan, Felipe de la Barra y Villegas, ordered spy boats and lookouts to sail north. They were to bring word if the pirate fleet began to approach Campeche. Then he and the governor began marshalling the militia there in Campeche. They had ample time to do so, too. Even still, they couldn't rouse more than two or three hundred soldiers, but it still gave them time to erect fortifications and dig trenches and mount additional batteries on the walls. But the real problem was that the people of Campeche had word of an imminent attack. They were well-practiced over the years in dealing with pirates. They had a lot of experience in the matter, so they hid their valuables. They buried what they could, and anything that they didn't care to bury... They sent inland. In a few weeks' time, words started arriving that the pirates were on the move. It appeared that they were, in fact, headed in the direction of Campeche. Anyone who had the means to, left the city. At the very least, they all sent women and children away. If necessary, they sent them on foot. All of their refugees carried all the valuables on their backs. And Now, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth reiterating to put these raids into perspective. It's easy to characterize the Spanish fleeing Campeche carrying their valuables as puffed-up, fat, rich Spaniards hauling away excessive amounts of treasure, and there was probably some of that. But most of them were poor, lower- and middle-class commoners. They were carrying away their savings. All of the hard coin that they'd ever managed to put away, well, that was the treasure that the pirates were after. That money might pay for their children's education, or could have been just what they had to feed themselves if they had a hard winter. That was what the pirates wanted to take, and they wanted to spend it on rum and gambling and women as fast as possible. It's a lot easier to stomach the pirates stealing from the rich and opulent and emptying the coffers of the town, and they would do that too, but let's not pretend they were Robin Hood here. The fleet arrived on the horizon near Campeche on the 6th of July, 1685. 700 buccaneers climbed aboard their periaguas and ferried themselves to shore. They sailed in boldly, this time openly. It was very much unlike the raid on Veracruz, but they were still expecting to take Campeche by surprise. What they intended with their boldness was to shock and intimidate the city. Instead... They found a militia of 200 soldiers that marched out from the city to meet the pirates exactly where they meant to make landfall. Now, I'd like you to imagine that situation, to put yourself in the shoes of the buccaneers. You were among 700 other pirates. All of you are tough, battle-hardened, experienced veterans, and 200 hastily aroused militia come out to meet you. However, you're in an open boat, out on the water. Imagine how hard it had to be to fire on the Spanish on shore. You're in a crowded boat. You have enough trouble finding a place to take your shot, and when you finally get the opportunity, the boat is bobbing up and down. You're almost certain to miss, to shoot too high or too low, and then you're going to have to try and reload a musket on that boat. The Spanish, though, they would be firing from shore. They were on steady ground in well-organized ranks. Volleys after volleys of musket fire would reach you before maybe you managed to get a single round off. So the pirates did what I imagine you or I would do. They stopped. They were still out of range of the Spanish guns, and they just stopped rowing. They held position. They stayed there all night, bobbing on the waves. But when dawn came, the pirates began rowing back towards their ships. The Spanish watched them row back from shore, but before they could react to their movements, the pirates changed course. They headed directly for the city to land just outside the walls. Before the defenders could arrive and intercept them, the buccaneers had disembarked and assembled in four columns. The vanguard was led by Captain Richard, with one hundred men under him, and they would be the first to enter the city. They were backed up by the two main wings of the army. One was led by Lorho de Graaf of 200, and the other by Captain Tocard, another 200. Then Michel de Grima led the final 200 pirates. They stayed to the rear. They were to guard their retreat should they need to return to the ships. They were prepared for an assault against the walls of Campeche, but it wouldn't turn out that way. Imminent pirate historian David F. Marley writes in his book, Wars of the Americas, quote, "...the Spaniards fall back. While out in the harbor, Captain Cristobal Martinez de Acvedo prepares to scuttle his coast guard frigate, the Nuestra Señora de la Soledad, as per his instructions. Originally intending to bore holes in its bottom, he now, given the speed of the invader's advance, directs his boatswain to run a trail of powder into its magazine, lighting the fuse from his frigate's boat. The Soledad explodes with such a shattering blast that it collapsed the defenders' morale, sending them scurrying back to their citadel while the freebooters enter Campeche uncontested. End quote. Through virtually no actions of their own, the pirates found themselves in control of Campeche. The citadel was a fortification in the center of the city, so they could enter and do as they pleased, anywhere in town. Now, many of the citizens of Campeche had already fled, and everyone that was left joined those soldiers in the citadel. So the pirates had five days to ransack the city. Now, they had to deal with occasional pockets of resistance. There were guerrilla fighters within the city. Snipers and ambushes waited for them. But the pirates could deal with any of those without too much difficulty. But once those pockets of resistance were dealt with, the buccaneers began to attack the citadel on July 12th. Any real valuables in the town and all of the people left, well, they were in there. It was the goal. However, the pirates were interrupted. A relief force from the city of Merida appeared and marched on Campeche. Now, that relief force left a route for the pirates to retreat back to their ships, which was, in fact, really the goal here. Usually, when reinforcements arrived, pirates fled, but not these pirates. They decided to hold on to the city. They were in command of Campeche's defenses, which gave them the opportunity to stand on the ramparts and man the cannon. They fired on the encroaching Spanish army. There were 600 buccaneers atop the walls of Campeche, and they stood and fought. They were... French and Dutch and English. There were also Germans and Swedes and Danes, and even some of them were Spanish. Many of them, perhaps most of them, weren't even European at all. There were free Africans and native Caribbeans in huge numbers. There were people who were Lutheran and Calvinist and Anglican. There were Jews and Catholics and even potentially Muslims there. More than a few Barbary Corsairs had filtered out to the new world to share in her riches. There were people who practiced voodoo and indigenous religions. There were atheists and deists and humanists. There were capitalists and royalists and anarchists. Now, we don't know their names if they were there, but it's not out of the question that there were even women among the pirates. They would have probably been dressed as men, so if they got away with it, we would never know. But all of them were there in Campeche, fighting together. Now, let's not pretend this was a noble fight. This wasn't the Alamo, but it was representative of the promise of the Americas. It was this tapestry of peoples of all sorts who were equal to one another, fighting together. Now, of course, their goal was to steal from the Spanish here, but I want to point this out because, well, this isn't the last time we'll see something like this, but it's the last time for a long time. This was the last great battle of the Brethren of the Coast. And they won that battle in what would prove to be a true pirate fashion, by backstabbing. Michel de Gramont led the other 200 pirates out of the city. They were to take a wide arc to circle around behind that Spanish relief force. While they were marching out, the pirates on the ramparts kept the Spanish occupied, But once Grimaud was in place, they opened fire. When he did, the pirates on the walls redoubled their own barrage. The Spanish found themselves pinned, and they were being cut down quickly. So they retreated. Campeche once again belonged to the pirates. What remained then of the defense of Campeche within the citadel fell apart. The militia inside mutinied in favor of surrender. They knew now that the city was lost, and they believed that, if they surrendered, they might at least live through this. The officers ordered the men back to their posts, but the militia threatened to shoot down any man that stood in the way. At first, a trickle of militia came out from the citadel to surrender, but then a flood of civilians followed. Everyone in the city was now a prisoner of the pirates. They even brought out a few Englishmen with them. Those Englishmen had been held prisoner in the cells below the citadel, and they weren't friends of the Spanish. So de Graff and Grimaud freed them, and then asked them to enter the citadel and discharge the cannon in there. That way, the pirates could approach the fortification, knowing that the guns were empty. So with Campeche completely under their control, the pirates had the opportunity to extract all the wealth they could from Campeche over the following days it wasn't much though most of the wealth of Campeche had traveled far inland and was unreachable what was left was a pittance even the enhanced interrogation that they employed well it didn't turn up much so the pirates took the horses from the city and let out raiding parties to the surrounding villages they burned those villages and they brought when there were any people there they brought them back to Campeche We can be at least reasonably assured that there wasn't much sexual violence, as most of the women and children had fled, but there was certainly violence against the men that remained. You see, as the days passed, and less and less treasure was being found, tensions mounted, and those days turned into weeks. The rules that governed the privateers began to disintegrate. De was sending letters out to the governor, demanding a ransom for the city, And they went from boastful to insistent, till finally they were almost pleading. He knew that if the men didn't receive a payday soon, things would get ugly. And he was right. As the weeks stretched on, 250 buccaneers decided to ride inland in mid-August. This time they rode farther in than usual, about 25 miles. They were ambushed by a Spanish force of 300 and took heavy losses in the fighting, So when they returned, it, well, it only served as further proof that the men were fighting and dying for nothing. They weren't getting rich here. They weren't really even paid at all. So on August 25th, the French among the pirates had the opportunity to let some of that tension out. They celebrated King Louis XIV's feast day. It was a celebration of all things French, and it was led by Grammont. The French drank, and they fought, and they raised hell. But some of them grumbled. Come morning, the pirates had decided that it was time to begin preparations to leave. They sent one last letter to the governor. This time, though, it wasn't de Graff that wrote the governor. It was Michel de Grammont. He demanded 80,000 pesos, or he said he would burn Campeche to the ground and kill all of the prisoners. For three days, they waited the crews loaded up what plunder they had found onto the ships. Now, there wasn't silver and gold, but they had found some sugar and indigo and spices. They might have trouble selling it, since they couldn't sell to the Dutch anymore, but it was better than nothing. Then the governor's reply arrived. It was the same as before. It was a flat refusal to pay them any money. Grimaud saw this as one last smack in the face, and he decided to extract his revenge. He went and gathered up the prisoners. He marched them into the city square and began executing them. There's no pretty way to put it. They were killed off as efficiently as possible. Now, apparently, in what might be considered poetic justice, Grimaud chose to use their own gallows for the act. Sort of a last bit of petty revenge, salt on the wound. Some of them were made to stand on the auction block where the slaves were sold, awaiting their execution. Considering many of the pirates' feelings on slavery, that may have had some of its own justice attached to it. He was hanging them as fast as possible, but it wasn't going fast enough, so he ordered some men to slit people's throats and others to just stab people and let them bleed out. A few of the locals, though, managed to get word to De Groff that something was happening there. De Groff rushed to the city square and saw, well, dozens of people dead. There were perhaps a hundred or more waiting for their turn. De Graff, though, didn't have the authority to command Grimaud to stop. Grimaud was not some foolish boy like Nicholas von Horn. Grimaud was one of the most respected pirates in the world. If he tried to do so, this tense situation was likely to turn into a battle between the privateers. So De Graff took Grimaud aside, and they spoke in pirate for some time. While they spoke, the prisoners waited, under guard, in anticipation. But when they were done talking, Ramal returned and spared the prisoners. However, before departing the next morning, he did follow through on the other part of his promise, and set fire to Campeche. This last battle was not a blaze of glory. The raid on Campeche was a failure. They invested lives and time and resources and got virtually nothing out of it. Now, in the mind of the governor back in Petit Guav, it may have turned out quite well. They occupied the Spanish. They dealt a bloody nose to the Spanish, which showed that they weren't weak. But for the men that actually took part in it, well, they didn't make any money. They risked life and limb. Many of them sacrificed life and limb for virtually nothing. In a lot of ways, this whole affair reminds me of Captain Morgan's raid on Panama. There was a large gathering of pirates, there was a battle, and then they occupied the city. But in the end, disappointing returns. After Panama, many of the brethren turned against Henry Morgan. And now, lorho de Graf was soon to find himself in similar disfavor. Next time, Armageddon. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon or by leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you listen to the show. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you certainly should do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at PirateHistoryPodcast.com or you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Once again, most importantly, thank you for listening.